If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 19. As we continue this morning in the Gospel of John, we'll be in John chapter 19, verses 17 through 30. John writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we read his words there, beginning in verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said... I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But, standing by the cross of Jesus, were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to the woman, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now as we consider these verses in John 19 this morning, we'll consider it under, th- under three main headings. First, Jesus really is the king of the Jews. Secondly, Jesus honored his mother. And thirdly, Jesus fulfilled the scripture in his death. So Jesus is really the king of the Jews. Jesus honored his mother. Jesus fulfilled the scripture in his death. Now, by the time we get to verse 17 in this chapter, the formalities of Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate were all over. Pilate had, as Luke said it in Luke 23, 25, Pilate had delivered Jesus to their will. The Jewish people, the Jewish leaders had all along been agitating for the death of Jesus, and Pilate delivered Jesus to their will. And so now Jesus is placed under the charge of Roman soldiers and is sent literally on the road to his death. And he goes out bearing the cross himself, likely not both beams of the cross, but rather probably the, only the, the timber to which his hands 
would have been nailed, which would have been raised into the horizontal position, the cross beam, so to speak. And so carrying his own cross, he goes out. Matthew, Mark, and Luke make the mention of the fact that a man named Simon of Cyrene was pressed into service to carry the cross. And the situation seems to have been such that Jesus went out beginning to bear his own cross, but then collapsed under its weight before actually reaching Golgotha, where the crucifixion was to take place. Now, Golgotha means the the place of a skull. The Latin is Calvaria, and this is why sometimes we refer to the place of crucifixion as Calvary. And though we're not entirely sure why the place was actually called Golgotha, the place of a skull, the best guess is that in some respect that hill resembled a skull in some way. And so once there, Jesus is crucified between two thieves. The usual practice was that when a criminal was on his way to crucifixion around his neck would have been hung a placard or a tablet upon which would have been written the charge for which he was condemned. And then upon being crucified, that placard would have been placed on the cross. The official charge against Jesus was that he was a king, king of the Jews. This was the charge, you'll remember, with which the chief priests were able to twist Pilate's arm into condemning Jesus and having him crucified. And so that's what Pilate wrote as the inscription for Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. And in truth, he probably did that out of spite. As we've seen in recent weeks, Pilate had been outmaneuvered and backed into a corner by the chief priests and coerced into doing something that he knew was neither just nor right, but he felt he had no way out, and so he did it. And so now, to get his little act of revenge, he wrote the charge as Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. As one writer expressed it, he has already taunted the Jews with Jesus' kingship. Here he does so again mocking their convenient allegiance to Caesar by insisting that Jesus is their king and snickering at their powerless status before the might of Rome by declaring this wretched victim their king. And you notice from the text that Pilate wrote it out so that everybody could read it. It was written in Hebrew, the common language of the people, probably what we would uh, think of as Aramaic. Uh, It was written in Greek, common language throughout the Roman Empire, and it was also written in Latin, the official language language of the Roman Empire. And as we know, the Jews are not happy with this being the charge for which Jesus is killed. The way that Pilate had expressed it on the placard made it sound like it was true. And against this, of course, the chief priests objected. And so they said, don't, don't write king of the Jews, but merely that he said, I am the king of the Jews. The priests wanted him sentenced to death because of the claim that he was the king of the Jews, not because of the fact that he was the king of the Jews. They knew he claimed it. They did not believe that it was a fact. But at this point, Pilate's done. He's done, right? He had complied with their desires to have Jesus killed, and he's not about to take take back his little piece of sarcastic revenge. And so he simply says, what I've written, I've written. He's over it. He's done. But observe in even this that the wrath of man praises God. Pilate certainly doesn't think that Jesus is king. He's just not going to back down from his petty revenge. One of the ancient writers, Philo of Alexandria, described Pilate as naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness, 
And I think we see that coming through here. Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. But what he wrote was actually the truth. And he was, in his own odd way, spreading the gospel in three languages. He may have even contributed to the salvation of someone who was there that day. Jesus really was the king of the Jews. A man named J.L. Reynolds described the mock ceremony that had earlier taken place in the, the praetorium of Pilate this way. He said, When Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate the remarkable words, I am a king, he pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting him with a crown of thorns and a reed and a robe of purple and nailing him to the cross. But in the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. The crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of an empire. The purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power. And the cross, the throne of dominion, shall never end. Jesus really was the king of the Jews. He was the promised son of David, under whom David's throne would be established forever, and through whom David's kingdom would endure forever before the Lord, as foretold in 2 Samuel seven sixteen. Jesus really is that righteous branch whom the Lord raised up for David, who would reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land, as we find in Jeremiah 23.5, Jesus is the priestly king, foretold by David himself in Psalm 110. And therefore, it should be no surprise when we get to the pages of the New Testament. When we read the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary in Luke chapter 1, telling her of the child that she would bear. Gabriel said, He will be great, and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It should be no surprise when we read the Gospel of Matthew that Matthew 2.2, he tells us of these magi who had shown up from the east and were asking, where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And indeed, when Jesus had entered into Jerusalem just a few days prior to his death, the crowd which greeted him, greeted him by shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's in John 12. Jesus really was the king of the Jews. He could be conspired against by the Jews and executed by Pilate and the Roman soldiers. He could be mocked and derided and disbelieved. But none of that is able to change the fact that he really is the king of the Jews. And Pilate, in his petty revenge and inflexibility toward the Jewish request to change the writing on that placard, spoke the truth more than he was aware And it's worth our notice that Pilate's unwitting witness to the truth may have actually borne some fruit that day. At the very least, we may suspect a connection between Pilate's witness and some fruit that was born. In Luke's account of the crucifixion, Luke 23, 36 to 43, he tells us of how soldiers were mocking him and were offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. He mentions the inscription that was written above Jesus. And then Luke turns his gaze to those two criminals who were crucified with Jesus. The one said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
The other you'll recall was much more reverent. And when he spoke to Jesus, he said this. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, we know nothing of this man, really. Nothing of his past or really much of the details even as to why he was crucified there with Jesus that day. But somewhere he had laid hold of this truth that Jesus is a king, that he would be coming in his kingdom. And he believed it. Jesus saw his faith and said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now obviously we can't say with any precision the degree to which Pilate's inscription there above Jesus may have played a role in the subsequent request of the penitent thief. But at the very least we can say Pilate was telling the truth even if he wasn't trying to, and that truth by Whatever means, whether it was the inscription or the mocking of the Roman soldiers or something else that this man had heard, he got home to his heart this truth that Jesus was a king, he believed it, and he was saved. Yet again, the wrath of man praises God. So Jesus really is the king of the Jews, and this is good news for us, because all who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are united together forming, as Paul put it in Ephesians 2.16, one new man. And we are reconciled to God in one body through the cross. In the mercy of God, all who trust in Christ are engrafted into the people of Israel, as Paul speaks in Romans 11, so that even we who are Gentiles, according to the flesh, may rightly call the king of the Jews our king. And as King Christ rules over us, he rules over his church by his word, by his Holy Spirit, and even now Christ rules among his enemies as well. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And because he reigns as king, this means that those who are his have nothing to fear. He will provide us all that he deems that we need. Whether those needs are physical or spiritual, Christ is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd king. Shepherd king who will lose none of those whom the Father has given to him. No one is able to snatch them out of his hand. Though we have trouble in this world, Jesus, our king, says to us, take courage, I have overcome the world. He's the overcoming, conquering king. And all who are united to Christ in faith will likewise overcome the world and will be more than conquerors through him who loved us and him who has given himself for us. And so praise be to God. Jesus is king. Now the question for you today, the question for me is, do we, first of all, believe this? Do we acknowledge this to be the truth? And secondly, do we live like it? Do we submit ourselves to Christ as king? Or do we merely say he's a king and then live as if he's not? The call of the gospel is to repent and believe, which is to submit to Christ as king, turn away from our sins and turn to him in faith and in obedience. Jesus really is king of the Jews. May he be our king as well. And we see, secondly, here in the text, that, that Jesus honored his mother. And we know, obviously, that this is one of the Ten Commandments, to honor your father and your mother. And here, in John 19, we see Jesus doing just that, even as he's enduring the agony of the crucifixion. If you look there, to verse 25, you'll notice that there was a group of women who were standing beside the cross. These were women who had loved 
and served and ministered to Jesus. It's difficult to say if John's list includes three women here or four. Obviously, you have Jesus' mother and Mary Magdalene. It's a bit of an open question whether the woman that John refers to as his mother's sister, whether that is said in reference to Mary, the wife of Clopas, and that these uh, his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas, are, are one and the same woman, or whether these are actually two separate women. And I suppose decent arguments could be made on both sides. But while we're here, it's worth considering that this woman, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, uh, probably has a more significant role than we might first, uh, than we might first think, based on just, just reading this quickly. The, the name that's, that's rendered in our modern English translations as Clopas, was rendered by the King James Version as, as Cleophas. And these, uh, this is the, the same name as uh, what we find in the other uh, evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as, as the name Alpheus. And so, uh, and so this, this name Cleophas, Alpheus, is, uh, is basically the same, same name. It's kind of like Rob and Bob or Will and Bill in English, right? And... And so it can reportedly be pronounced either way, Cleophas or Alpheus. The second century Christian writer Hegesippus reported that, that this man Clopas, Cleophas, Alpheus, is the uncle of Jesus, brother of Joseph. Alpheus, of course, is the name of one of the father of the, the twelve disciples. Remember the list of the twelve disciples? One of them was named James, the son of Alpheus. And this woman here that John calls Mary, the wife of Clopas, seems to be also the woman that we find in Matthew 27, 56, referred to as Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Mark refers to Mark 15, 40 as Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph. And therefore, this wife of Cleophas, or this wife of Alphaeus, the mother of James, is probably the mother to one of the twelve disciples, the mother of James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, this other woman there, Mary Magdalene, we know was a woman who was specially devoted to our Lord. She was there at the cross for his crucifixion. She was there at the grave early on Sunday morning, as we'll see as we keep going in this gospel. To, she was there to find the empty tomb. And this was a woman who had good reason to be devoted to Christ Luke chapter 8, verse 2 tells us that she had had seven demons cast out from her. And so this was a woman who knew firsthand the power of Jesus to restore and to give life. And so these, these, woman, these women stood by Jesus when most of his disciples had fled for their own safety. Obviously, the apostle John was there, as we'll see, but most of the other disciples were nowhere to be found. At least it seems that way. As Chrysostom in the ancient church put it, the weaker sex appeared the manlier. We see there that Jesus' mother, Mary, was there, probably experiencing that which Simeon had foretold when she brought the baby Jesus into the temple. And Simeon had said to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Can you imagine? What's going through Mary's mind? There she was, watching her son undergo the agonies of crucifixion. 
But even in his sufferings, Jesus honored her in the sense of caring for her, in the sense of making sure that her needs would be provided for. Jesus saw her, and he also saw the disciple whom he loved. This is the Apostle John. John is there nearby. John's style is modest, and so he doesn't like to draw attention to himself. But the fact that our author, John, is indeed the disciple whom Jesus loved is is made abundantly clear for us at the end of the gospel in uh, chapter 21. So Jesus sees them both, and he says, Woman, behold your son. He says to John, Behold your mother. And what is meant by this is clear there in the end of verse 27. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, our English versions uh, supply the word home or household there at the end of the verse, but the original is much more open-ended. It doesn't necessarily imply that John was a homeowner. Maybe he was. The Bible isn't clear about that. The idea, though, is that, is that Mary is taken under his, under his wings, taken under his care. And so even in his dying moments, in his excruciating agony, Jesus is not only fulfilling the scriptures in the sense of fulfilling those prophecies which were made about him, but he is actually obeying the law even as he's dying. Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4 and 5 that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law. And as one who was under the law, he honored the law. He honored the law to honor his mother. Here we see him doing just that. Now, we never read about Mary's husband, Joseph, being alive in Scripture after Luke chapter 2, after Jesus is 12 years old at the temple. He goes up with, uh, with Mary and Joseph and his, his relatives. But we never read of Joseph being alive after that. And for all that we know, it seems likely that Joseph is dead by the time that Jesus is on the cross. And, as controversial as it may be to say, We don't know for sure, but that Jesus may actually have been the only son of his mother. The Bible is never absolutely explicitly clear that Mary had children other than Jesus. I know this is the common Protestant interpretation of that, but the older Protestants on my reading were were much more open to considering that when we read about the the brothers and sisters of Jesus, that these these could be cousins, these could be sons of Joseph by a former marriage. The Bible's not 100% clear. They could have been the sons and daughters of Mary, Maybe they weren't. But one way or the other, Jesus is honoring his mother here. And indeed, if Jesus were Mary's only son, it would make this action here in John 19 all that much more understandable. As the proto-Puritan William Perkins expressed it, he said he commanded his mother, uh, commended his mother to the custody of John, which probably argues that she had no child to whose care and keeping she might be commended. In other words... As Mary is standing there and watching Jesus on the cross, she might not only be concerned about the agonies of her son, but the uncertainties of her own future as well. Who's going to take care of her? She can't just go down and get a job at McDonald's. There's no Social Security check. The potential prospects of obtaining social support from the synagogue didn't look too bright, considering that there had already been a decision by the Jews to put out from the synagogue anyone who believed that Jesus was the Christ. And so Jesus honors his mother by putting her under the care of a trustworthy man, the Apostle John. Paul would later write in 1 Timothy 5.4 that if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. 
And just a few verses later, 1 Timothy 5.8, he says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so this is what the Word of God requires for us in respect to, to honoring our parents. And Jesus demonstrates that for us here by his action. He honors his mother. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that in honoring our father and mother when they're too old to care for themselves that they necessarily have to move into our homes, but it does mean that to the best of our ability, we need to make sure that they are provided for when they cannot provide for themselves. Chrysostom said, We ought to pay them all becoming respect and prefer them before all others because they begat us, because they bred us up, because they bear for us 10,000 terrible things. Now, is that for a description of a parent, to bear for your child 10,000 terrible things? And the point is, is that since our parents have done that for us, we, uh, as we are able, when they grow old, ought to also take care of them to the best of our ability. Now, realize this is not necessarily a top priority in our society, perhaps not even something that we as Christians think about as often as we should, but we ought to think about it. Because the scripture commands us to honor our father and mother. And the scripture commands us to practice piety in regard to our own family, to to show them honor, to care for them. And we see Jesus doing this. As Jesus is obedient to the law, Jesus is honoring his mother by seeking to care for her. Now, for for different ones of us, this, uh, this will look different depending on our situation in life and the situation of our parents. Sometimes it might mean that parents move in with children. Other times it might not. But the command to honor our father and mother does mean more than simply just be obedient to them when you're little at home. It certainly does mean that, but it means much more than that. We also see here in John a model for us of someone who shows us how the Christian community is to take care of their own. Right? John is not literally the son of Mary. Mary is not literally his mother. But nevertheless, at the behest of Jesus, he takes care of her. Same should be true of us. We take care of our fellow believers in Christ. And we see, we see John willing to do that. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And so, again, this will, look, this will look different in different cases. Sometimes helping our brothers and sisters and caring for them means helping them get a job, right? Paul is very clear that if a man won't work, he should not eat. But uh, sometimes, sometimes it will mean different things, helping people get a job, helping them uh, when, uh, when their nest egg gets used up under extraordinary circumstances and they need some extra help. It will look different in different ways. But nevertheless, we see John here as a model for us of taking care of the broader Christian community. We see thirdly in these verses that Jesus fulfilled the scripture for us, fulfilled the scripture in his death. Now, in some regards, John is explicit and upfront about this fulfillment. He'll he'll say, Jesus did this, this happened to fulfill the scripture. Sometimes John shows us this in a rather implicit way. And if we compare what we read here in John 19 and think back to the history and the prophecies of the Old Testament, we can see, we can see 
different things that are being fulfilled, even if John doesn't come right out and say this happened to fulfill this prophecy that was prophesied here. Now, for one, we see Jesus going out, walking, carrying the cross, carrying the wood on, upon which he would be sacrificed. Our brother Stan read for us earlier Genesis chapter 22, in which we have Isaac, the only son of his father, the only son whom he loved. Isaac carried the wood upon which he was to be sacrificed. That wood was laid upon him by his father Abraham in Genesis 22.6. As John Pearson put it in his exposition of the Apostles' Creed, he says, And the Christ, who was to be the most perfect sacrifice, the person in whom all nations were to be blessed, could die no other death in which wood was to be carried. And being to die upon the cross was, by the formal custom used in that kind of death, certainly to carry it. Therefore, Isaac bearing the wood did signify Christ bearing the cross. And you can see the correspondence between those two events. You have a father intent upon sacrificing his son. The son walked to the place of sacrifice. He walked carrying the wood upon which he was to be sacrificed. The son, in both cases, was the son of promise, child of blessing. In Abraham's case, the Lord prevented the sacrifice, providing a ram. And Abraham named the mountain, the Lord will provide. And this was a type, a picture, pointing ahead to Christ, in whom, indeed, the Lord did provide. God himself provided the lamb for the sacrifice. We see it here, John 19. We also see here that Jesus suffered outside the city of Jerusalem. Or to put it otherwise, he suffered outside the camp. In verse 17, it says that he went out. And then in verse 20, John tells us that the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was near the city. It wasn't in the city, though. It was outside of it. Now, why is this significant? Now, if you were here with us several months ago when we were looking at Leviticus 4 on a Sunday evening, we considered how the flesh and the hide of the bulls of the sin offerings, in particular those sin offerings whose blood was taken in to make atonement in the holy place, the flesh and the hide of the bulls of those sin offerings had to be taken outside the camp and burned. And so we find this in Leviticus 4, 11 and 12. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull, he is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are put and burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. Leviticus 6.30 also touches on this when it says, No sin offering of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten, it shall be burned with fire. And so therefore the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So the burning of those bodies of the bulls outside the camp served to signify Jesus' suffering on Golgotha, outside 
the city. Jesus suffered outside the camp. And according to the writer of Hebrews, we then have to go to him outside the camp. That means that we have to bear whatever reproach may come upon us for following Christ. If that means becoming outcasts, so be it. Jesus himself was an outcast. But we do this in the knowledge that being in Christ and being with Christ is worth it. He is our Messiah priest who became sin for us so that he might sanctify us through his blood so that we might be forgiven. It's worth it. Let's go to Jesus outside the camp. Let's take up our cross and honor him who gave his all for us. John tells us also that Jesus is crucified between two other men. Luke calls them criminals, Luke 23, 39. Mark calls them robbers, Mark 15, 27. Jesus was, in this way, numbered with the transgressors, as Isaiah said he would be, Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. We see an explicit fulfillment in verses 23 through 25 concerning the division of Jesus' clothing. The execution squad would have consisted of four soldiers, and so it seems that they were able to, uh, for each of them to take an item from Jesus' clothes that were laying there. John explicitly mentions the fourfold division in verse 23, but he doesn't tell us exactly what those four parts were. It could have been uh, potentially his, his outer cloak, his, uh, his head covering, his belt and his sandals, and that each of the four soldiers was able to, to get a piece. We don't know for sure. But at any rate, each of the four got something, and then came the tunic, seemingly the, the inner garment, which would have been worn next to the skin. There's a fifth piece of clothing, but how do you divide one more piece of clothing among four soldiers after they've already gotten a piece? If it was torn to divide it equally, that would have been a little scrap of cloth for each of them, not too valuable. And so they figured the equitable thing to do would be to cast lots for it and see who would get it. John tells us that this was to fulfill the scripture. Scripture found in Psalm 22, 18. They divided my outer garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. And then John adds the interesting line there at the beginning of verse 25. Therefore... The soldiers did these things. Obviously, those Roman soldiers had no clue. They're not thinking Psalm 22, 18 says that the Messiah's clothing is going to be divided. Let's gamble for his stuff. They have no clue what they're doing. But they were actually fulfilling the very thing that God had foretold through David that was going to happen. We're reminded by this that God is in charge of this entire situation. The crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, all of this was completely planned by God. God was sovereignly superintending everything. He was even in control of the wicked actions of these soldiers. And this was all to bring about his good plan for our redemption. The division of the clothing is, in a way, a sign, I guess you could say, to signify that as far as the eye of the flesh is concerned, Jesus is done for. He, he's a dead man. They're, they're giving away his clothes. He's not, he's not coming back to take them. That was what everyone there would have been thinking. Martin Luther observed, this distribution of garments served for a sign that everything was done with Christ, just as with one who was abandoned, 
lost, to be, to be forgotten forever. And we see another fulfillment of Scripture in verses 28 and 29. Jesus knew that all things had been accomplished or fulfilled. He knew that he had flawlessly fulfilled the plan of the Father. He knew that the Scriptures were being fulfilled by his death. And in the midst of all of that, he knew of another prophecy, which was not yet fulfilled. A prophecy about him taking a drink. And he was genuinely thirsty. He wasn't merely seeking to fulfill what remained unfulfilled, but he was genuinely thirsty from all of the agony and the physical pain that he was suffering there upon the cross. And so he said, I am thirsty. And then verse 28 informs us that when Jesus had said this, this sour wine was given to him in response to this statement, I am thirsty. This sour wine would have likely been a, a mixture of, uh, of sour wine with water or, uh, or vinegar with water that was used by the Roman soldiers there on duty as a stimulant. And none of the gospel writers tell us this uh, specifically, but the one who gave him a drink that day was fulfilling the words of Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This incident here, which took place just before Jesus' death, should not be confused with the incident related by Matthew and Mark. Matthew 27, 34, and Mark 15, 23, which take place just after Jesus arrived at Golgotha. You may remember that Matthew and Mark tell us that when they arrived at Golgotha, Jesus was offered wine mixed with gall, as Matthew put it, or wine mixed with myrrh, as Mark put it, and that Jesus refused to drink. That was when they first got there to Golgotha. And the the purpose for which Jesus had been offered that wine mixed with gall or with myrrh was that it was given to those who were to be crucified so that their senses would be numbed up a little bit. They'd be deadened to taking on the full effect of the agonies of crucifixion. And the reason seems to be for which Jesus refused to drink was that he didn't want to be numb to the pain. He wanted to take on the full agony of the cross, to take in all of the sufferings for himself. Christian friend, Jesus did this for you. But now, after he'd been on the cross for a number of hours, Jesus is thirsty. He has taken the pain that guilty sinners deserve for their sins, and he asks for a drink, and he receives a drink. The accounts given by Matthew and Mark make it clear that just prior to receiving this sour wine, Jesus had cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, as John tells us here, he said, I am thirsty, and he received the drink. And Luke and John record for us Jesus' final words before death. Luke tells us that he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. John tells us here that Jesus said, It is finished. Now those words, it is finished, are so simple, but they contain perhaps more than any of us can fathom. He had fulfilled the the Old Testament types and the Old Testament prophecies that were pointing to him. He had obeyed the law perfectly. He had obeyed the Father in the plan of salvation perfectly. He had finished all of the sufferings that were necessary to ransom and redeem a people for himself. And I don't claim that even these observations exhaust Christ's meaning when he said, it is finished. But this at least gives us some idea of what Jesus 
was talking about when he said, it is finished. Now, obviously, when Jesus said that, he still remained for his side to be pierced. He still had to undergo the burial, still had to rise from the dead, still had to ascend to the Father. And so we shouldn't construe Jesus' statement, it is finished, in such a way as to imply that the plan of salvation was, at that moment, was finished. There was, there was more things to be accomplished, but we might say that the hard part was done at that point. Resting in the grave and in the agonies of death, rising from the dead and ascending to the Father were easy compared with what Christ had undergone for the last day of his life leading up to that moment. Suffering was over. He said, it is finished. And then, after he had said that, John tells us that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And notice there that that even in his death, Jesus is in charge. No one is taking his life from him. He was laying it down of his own accord. He gave up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it up. He bowed his head, gave up his spirit. And we should note that this is what happens at death, that the human spirit separates from the body. As Solomon said it in Ecclesiastes 12:7, the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So Jesus' lifeless body hung there on the cross, but his, his human spirit, his human soul, had departed, passed into the realm of the dead, the realm of dead souls. He went to the dead and continued in the state of the dead until his resurrection. He remained there in the agony of death for three days, with death appearing to have had the final word to uh, make the appearance of winning the victory until Easter Sunday morning came around. It was then that God raised him up, and as Peter would say in Acts 2.24, putting an end to the agony of death. For a time, though, Christ appeared to be swallowed up in death entirely defeated by it. He gave up his spirit. This was the utmost degree of Christ's humiliation, going to the dead and remaining in the state of the dead until his resurrection. But friends, this is what Christ has done for us. Our Lord gave up his spirit. Our Lord fulfilled the scriptures. Our Lord died for us. He died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He finished the suffering and all that was necessary for our salvation. Beloved, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is king of the Jews. He is king of all who will repent and believe in him. So by his grace, let's follow him with all that we are. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come to you this morning and we are, are grateful for what Christ has accomplished and finished for us by his death. And we praise you that the great events of his resurrection and ascension to your right hand are not unknown to us, that we are not left wondering what would happen the way those women and John and the others who loved him and saw him on the cross dying were left. We praise you, Father, that we know the end of the story. We know the resurrection, we know of Christ's ascension to your right hand as our great high priest. Father, we ask that you would help us, that you would strengthen us, that we would love and honor Christ, that we would follow him and submit to him as king with all that we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.